I really wanted to share more of my own story, share more of the highs and lows and the real work that I've had to do behind the scenes to really shift my mindset, to go from, as you know, losing everything in the recession, literally to the point of scraping up change and to come back and build another seven-figure business online and do it from a place of purpose, right? Not chasing money, but really pursuing purpose and making sure that it was truly in alignment with who I authentically am. Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan, and mamas, today on the show, we're talking to Patrice Washington, host of the Redefining Wealth podcast and author of the brand new book, Redefine Wealth for Yourself, How to Stop Chasing Money, Finally Live Your Life's Purpose, and Find Fulfillment. Patrice has built a fantastic community of high-achieving women who are committed to creating a powerful life vision, and she's here to share with us how money is only one of the pillars of a wealthy life. As always, stick around until the end of the show to hear my top three takeaways from this conversation with Patrice, or you can head over to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Patrice for the complete show notes and to download your free Meaningful Money Goal Kickstart Guide. Are you ready, mamas? Let's get started. Hey, Patrice, welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show. Hey, I'm so excited to be here. We had so much fun at Mama's Talk Money last year, and I'm so glad to actually have you on the show now and be talking about your new book. Tell us what this new book is about. So first of all, I have to say, I had so much fun during that summit. I think I DM'd you a million times, like, I love this community. I love everything that you've created. And I felt like I was at home just getting to know everyone in the comments. And so I'm really excited to share about the new book. It's called Redefine Wealth for Yourself. As a matter of fact, here it is, Redefine Wealth for Yourself. And I'm so excited about it because unlike my previous four books, those books were very information-based. Like I just wanted to, here's how you do these money principles go off and be great, right? But in Redefine Wealth for Yourself, I really wanted to share more of my own story, share more of the highs and lows and the real work that I've had to do behind the scenes to really shift my mindset, to go from, as you know, losing everything in the recession, the late 2000s, literally to the point of scraping up change and to come back and build another seven-figure business online and do it from a place of purpose, right? Not chasing money, but really pursuing purpose and making sure that it was truly in alignment with who I authentically am. That takes work. When you've experienced some type of major financial setback or you've had what you might call a financial failure, it's easy for people to show you a spreadsheet or to be like, these are the three yeah. credit bureaus, but it's not so easy for people to be honest about, but what are you doing every day? Like, what are the behaviors yeah. that you've had to take on? What are the limiting beliefs you've had to leave behind? Like, how have you gone about creating or curating the community that you need in order to rebuild yourself when you've come from such a broken place? It's the truth about what I've done to go from seven-figure business to scraping up change back to seven-figure business because that's a lot of work and it's just not spreadsheets. 
Yeah. And your story is, we heard it during a little bit during the summit, but for the people who are listening who don't know, I know you kind of gave the brief seven figures to zero to seven figures again, but tell us a little bit more about what happened. Well, let me say this. I was introduced to real estate initially at 19 years old. So a family friend was a real estate broker, told me I would be great as a real estate agent. I liked the flexibility that it looked like it could deliver. And so I got a salesperson's license at 19 years old as a sophomore in college. And then by 21, went on to obtain my broker's license. So I was a real estate and mortgage broker in the state of California passed the exam at 21, 22, opened my first brokerage with my now husband. He wasn't even my boyfriend yet. He was a friend that liked me a lot. But anyway, it worked out for him. And so, (laughs) and together with my business background and his marketing background, we turned, we started in the dining room of my small apartment. We turned it into a seven figure real estate empire. We purchased 13 pieces of property and we had this thriving brokerage that had 16 loan officers and real estate agents. We were bringing in seven figures by 25 years old, and we thought we had hit the jackpot. I mean, we're driving matching Range Rovers, and you know, I gave my mom a car, and we thought we had hit the jackpot. We thought it could never end until it did. And in 2007, while I was pregnant, I actually took a fall down the stairs And it sent me into preterm labor at just 20 weeks. And when I got to the hospital, Chelsea, the people in the emergency room said, hey, you're in full-blown labor. I'm sorry, but this baby is coming any minute now. There's nothing we can do. And I did the only thing that I knew to do, which was pray and call and ask other people to pray. And what was supposed to be any minute now actually ended up with me staying in the hospital for 10 weeks. Oh, wait, it gets better. So I'm in the hospital, on hospital bed rest with the monitor around my waist, monitoring the baby, the little belt there. And about five weeks into my stay, the doctor comes in, Dr. Lee, I'll never forget. And she says, Patrice, if you don't stop stressing out, you're going to leave here two years in a row with no baby. Because backstory, I had lost a son to premature labor the year before, same hospital, same doctor, same floor. And so I had to make a decision to surrender. So instead of trying to force that everything would work out, I had to surrender because what happened was I was stressing out because I was watching the news every day and the banks that we worked with were closing down. And so my loan officers and real estate agents kept calling like, hey, what do I do? My deal is falling apart. My client is losing their deposit. This is going wrong. All these things. And they were so used to me being the fixer. They were used to me being the person who could come in and make their deal work. And here I am on hospital bed rest. It's my first time even seeing anything like this, this real estate bubble that's bursting. And I have no idea how to help myself, much less them. And so long story short, I left that experience with a healthy baby who you now know is Reagan, who's 13 years old. But I left that experience with my healthy little baby who was born 10 weeks premature. And I also left with almost $400,000 in medical debt and no deals closing because my insurance company had dropped. So all of the things were happening at this time. And in less than a year, we exhausted all of our savings. We couldn't rob Peter to pay Paul, as they say, anymore. We couldn't move things around and try to finagle things. We literally went from this seven-figure business 
and this thriving company to scraping up change. I went from my 6,000 square foot home foreclosing to living in a 600 square foot box of an apartment in Metairie, Louisiana. And my breaking point was the day that I couldn't put on a strong face or a happy face for anyone else. I couldn't keep pretending that I could encourage my husband and keep him motivated and uplifted. I had that moment where, I don't know if you've been there, Chelsea, but that sick and tired of being sick and tired. I had one of those, that ugly mm-hmm. cry, that come to Jesus moment where you're just like, I can't take any more. And it was that moment where I just realized several things. But one of them I always share is a scripture that I found, Proverbs 17, 16. And it said, what good is money in the hands of a fool if they have no desire to seek wisdom? And that was one of the first times I realized that while I had a lot of book smarts and I was very knowledgeable about things, I didn't know the difference between knowledge and wisdom, that knowledge was just information, but wisdom was knowing how to apply it and when. And I made a promise that I would live my life right with this mission of just sharing with people. This journey is not just about chasing money. It's about seeking wisdom. And so what I put in Redefine Wealth for Yourself are the things that I was doing that you may not always equate to financial success, but I definitely think there's a connection there. Absolutely. And so you have your six pillars of wealth. And you and I have talked a little bit in the past too of I agree with you that we have to look at wealth holistically and money is often an output of how we're handling the rest of our lives and it's instead of money first and then the other things later. Let's talk through some of these pillars. The first one being fit. Why is fitness the first step here? Oh my gosh, I can just imagine the collective sigh when you said that. People were like, oh, she's going to talk about going to the gym. And we hear that health is wealth, right? (laughs) We hear it. It's so cliche. But this is the way that I explain it in Redefining Wealth. Fit is about becoming your best self. And I truly believe that it's not about a dress size. So don't get hung up on that. It's not about a number on a scale. It's about making sure that you are physically and mentally prepared for what you say you're praying for, right? For the things that you say you look forward to having. So right now we live in a culture, Chelsea, that glorifies being busy. It glorifies, oh my gosh, I have so much to do. My calendar is so full. I haven't slept in days. But that really doesn't make sense to me when you think about the long-term sense of wealth building, because why would you be grinding yourself into the ground, but you say you have this vision for what you want when you're 50, 60, 70. There's no way you cannot sleep, not eat well, not take care of yourself, not treat your body well, and think that you're even going to be here. I think it's it's really yeah. bold to assume that you can abuse your body physically and mentally and then enjoy some type of retirement. No, what you're doing is working towards prescriptions you can't pronounce, right? And so my big thing is purpose. And I believe that purpose requires you to prepare yourself physically and mentally. If you have a vision for your life, if you have a vision for your retirement, if you have a vision for your legacy, you have a duty and responsibility to protect the only vessel you get. You got to protect it both physically and mentally. Absolutely. So there was actually a line in your book, you were talking about a medical issue you came up against. And you said, I was too busy. I told myself to be running back and forth to medical appointments. Instead, I self-diagnosed like many busy professional women that I know, and I got it completely wrong. Tell us about this story. Oh my gosh. So I was actually preparing for a book tour. It was my second book. And I've been praying like, God, enlarge my territory. I want to go everywhere. And 
It's so funny. I went to a class reunion at the University of Southern California and I got food poisoning. And the food poisoning put me back at the same hospital. (laughs) Cedar sinai in Beverly Hills took me back and put me in the ER. And when they were running all the tests and diagnostics, they hooked me up to the IV to hydrate me and all that. And the young man comes in and he says, well, Mrs. Washington, you have more problems than just, you know, food poisoning. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And he starts to say, well, have you been paying attention to the symptoms? Well, what symptoms? Well, fatigue. I'm like, well, of course I'm tired. I'm always on the road. Well, you know, are you always cold or this or that? Like, ask me all these questions. And I realized that I have been suffering from these symptoms for a really long time. And what it came down to is that my blood levels and my iron were very low. And so your hemoglobin levels should be like 12 or something and up. And I was like a four point something. And essentially they said, ma'am, you've been running on fumes, but I hid it under, well, I'm busy. So of course I'm tired, right? Like, oh, well, I'm doing all these things. I was working on my book. I've been traveling, speaking. And so I self-diagnosed and assumed that I needed to get in shape and work out more. And what I was doing, Chelsea, was trying to go to these workout classes. And the women there were 10, 15 years older than me. And they were just leaving me in the dust. And so I was trying to force my body to like do better, be better. But the truth is, I literally did not have the blood supply to create the oxygen for me to have endurance. I was short of breath because I really didn't have the iron. I didn't even know those things were connected. And the lesson I always say there for moms, too, is... We would never let our children or our significant others have those types of symptoms and ignore them. We would immediately make a doctor's appointment. And I know so many moms, including myself at that time, where I would rather limp around and attempt to self-diagnose, you know, WebMD, than make an appointment. Like, let me Google a few things. I'll figure it out. And here I was literally, and this is when I knew it was serious too. He said, if you were to get in a car accident right now, you could have a simple injury and probably bleed to death just because you don't have enough blood. If you were any older than you are, we would be sending you to have a blood transfusion right now, but we're going to trust you to go to a hematologist and get the IV infusions, which is what I did. But it was eye-opening to see that I had allowed myself to be so busy in the name of building a business for my family, but I was ignoring my health to the point where I was about to possibly cost my family me. What good would that be? Absolutely. And do you think that part of this is society in general teaches women and moms to be martyrs and to like ignore our own? We don't listen to our bodies very well. I feel like I hear this story over and over again where it takes burnout. It takes somebody telling you you're going to be in a car accident and pass away from minor injuries. Do you think that's part of it? I definitely think it's societal. I think it goes a step further for women who work outside of the home or maybe entrepreneurial, because I think that for myself, I know I wanted to prove that I could do it all. And so this idea of, well, we deserve it all and we can have it all. We don't recognize that that doesn't mean doing all the things every day full force. A lot of us take that on trying to juggle the pickup, the drop off, the homework, doing our own things, you know, doing things for our spouse. Like we just try to take on so much to prove that we can do it all, but sometimes it's to our own detriment. Mm. On this point of trying to do it all, I've got two questions for you. One, can you explain what well-being welfare is? Oh my gosh, yes. 
well-being <laughs> welfare is this concept that I learned from Mickey Taylor. She was editor-at-large for Essence Magazine. And, and in her book, she talks about this idea of well-being welfare. And that's the idea that you only practice self-care when someone possibly gives you a gift card or a coupon or maybe suggest that you go do something else, but you don't make self-care a priority for yourself on a regular basis. And I know so many moms, Chelsea, that will do whatever it takes to get the soccer equipment for their child. But then if it was to schedule some pampering time for themselves, they would feel guilty about it. They would say, well, no, the family can't do that, or that's not a wise way to use the resources. And so again, kind of putting you to the bottom of the list and then not taking care of yourself when in fact our families need us to be our best possible versions in order to continue to serve them. Absolutely. And so the second part of this is actually moving into the next pillar, which is people and the support that we need. And so why is cultivating that support and accountability necessary to building a wealthy life? I think all the pillars are important, but this goes back to this idea of needing to be everything to everyone, wanting to do it all, and then not being able to accept support, something I was very guilty of. And so the people pillar for us is about creating relationships that matter. And that's both personally and professionally. And I would say one of the greatest lessons that I've learned as a mom, I remember back to this idea of wanting to do it all, that I would try to be and do everything for Reagan. And then I would be bitter that my husband, Gerald, would I felt like he was off living his life, <laughs> right? Like he would get up, go to work, have no concern about how she was going to get to school, how she would get home. He just knew that it would happen. He just knew groceries would be there. He just knew dry cleaning would get picked up. Had no concerns, right? And not because... He's not a, a great guy or a thoughtful person, but I made it look like and feel like I had it all together. But secretly, I wasn't allowing even my my marriage relationship to support me because I was raised in a household with a single mother and a single grandmother. Neither of them ever married. And so I was taught how to be the independent woman. So I, without knowing, was choosing this lifestyle as if I were a single mom. Right. So I was creating these scenarios where I had to do everything yeah. simply because I wouldn't ask for help. And I remember the first time I was upset about something and I was like, you know, I brought it to his attention. And he's like, well, babe, why didn't you tell me? And now we share so many of the responsibilities. It's not very traditional. Right. Like there are seasons where he's kind of like and I don't even want to use this term that Mr. Mom, it's not that, but he's the parent that steps up because when I was finishing the book and I was staying in hotels sometime to get it done, he made sure that she was taken care of and going where she needed to be and all that. And so I think this is a really important piece, again, for women who want to be well, right, in the wealth building space is to remember that we don't have to do it all. And even if you're not in, if you're not married, if you're not in a, a serious relationship, it's even learning how to accept support from others. I think a lot of times we think, well, no one wants to help me, but we're so used to looking like we can do it all. And then we haven't articulated what support we actually need. Because I believe people do want to support us, but we have to say what the support is and draw it out for people. They're not mind readers. And the sooner that we can do that, the sooner we can start to hold ourselves more accountable to get to the things that we say we want 
but also develop other types of accountability around us because now other people can be enrolled in the vision for what we're saying we want for our lives. Absolutely. And I think the point about your mom and your grandmother being single moms is a really interesting thing, thinking about mindset and realizing our own limited perspective, right? When it comes to wellness or relationships or money, we only have our own history. And sometimes it's hard to grow beyond that if we can't take the time to identify what we want to change. And so how did you even come to the realization that you were acting like a single mom, even though you were married? Definitely through therapy. <laughs> That's back to that fit pillar. Um, th- therapy was a really great way. I think like 75% of our guests like say that you should just go to therapy. Yeah, it got worked out in therapy because it starts to be like, well, it's the why, right? So when you identify a limiting belief and you're trying to get to the root of it, and mine was at the time that I had to do all the things and just going through my therapist, but why do you have to do all the things? Because Gerald's at, well, why is Gerald at work? Like, did you tell him? Did you ask? Did you suggest a schedule? Did you let him know she had something important? And then you start to go, well, no. I mean, well, I I hinted at, you know, I, I had an attitude. I gave him the silent treatment. He should have figured out what that meant. But really, how could anyone, right? Therapy for me is also a big part of that fit pillar. And I do believe that a lot of us honestly are carrying around so many limiting beliefs and childhood trauma that prevent us from getting to the wealth that we say we want to create. Because you and I both know that there's so many ways to create wealth, right? There's no one way to do any of this. Some of us are going to be more skilled in investing. Some people might be more skilled in real estate, or you might find whatever your way of building wealth is That's fine. The thing is, when we have so much clutter in our heads about whether we can, whether we're worthy, whether people like us, quote unquote, can do these things, you can have the information right in front of you and still not be able to see it because you have a block going on. And there's possibly something that's been running the show that happened 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago. And now you keep perpetuating that story. But the truth is, you have all the ability in the world. It's a mind thing first. Ah, uh, yeah. Let's talk about that mindset piece because you had to have such faith and confidence to rebuild after losing it all in 2008. And we all have mindset work we need to do to reach our purpose. Before we do that, though, let's take a quick pause to hear from our partners who help make the Smart Money Mama show possible. Mamas, it's almost spring cleaning time, so I want to share my favorite place to buy natural cleaning and personal care products and other household essentials. It's called Grove Collaborative. Every month, we receive an order of bamboo toilet paper, cleaning products we need to restock, the kids' toothpaste and shampoo, and more, right to our doorstep, all at competitive prices. But Grove isn't my favorite just for the convenience and their great products. Grove is a values-focused company. They're actually a B Corp, which means they have to meet standards on social and environmental impact that only provides products that have met their standards for non-toxicity, effectiveness, and sustainability. And of course, everything is cruelty-free. Plus, Grove is moving beyond plastic, an initiative that my family greatly values. Today, Grove is already plastic neutral. For every ounce of plastic they sell, they collect and recycle an ounce. The company has removed 3.7 million pounds of plastic from waterways since January 2020. Incredible. But by 2025, they'll actually be 100% plastic free. If you want to use quality household products that are good for your family and good for the earth, I highly recommend you check out Grove. You can get a free gift with your first order at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Grove today. 
Oh, one last thing. You can also see which products were created by women-owned businesses and businesses owned by people of color if you want to further align your purchases with your values. Ah, incredible. Head to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash grove to check it out. So let's talk about the mental side for a second, because so many people, first of all, not a lot of people get to build a seven-figure business. Then people who then face a business failure often don't come back from it, right? They get bitter, they get angry, they think something's been stolen from them, and then they stay in that stuck place, that scarcity mindset place. So what do you credit for letting yourself rebuild a business with purpose and getting back to that wealthy place? For me, I would have to say, first and foremost, the faith pillar, which is the fourth pillar in redefining wealth. That pillar is about believing in something greater. And I always tell people, I consider myself to be a follower of the teachings of Jesus Christ. I don't think it's about which religion you may prescribe to. It's more about what does that structure teach you about when life happens? Because the reality is life is going to happen to all of us. It's not a matter of if, it's when, right? We're all going to face trials, tribulations, tough times, valleys, and having something to stand on that says, for me, well, that didn't really happen to you, though, that happened for you. Because now, if that's what my belief is, even when things happen that I'm not particularly thrilled about, things that I'm devastated by, I've learned to fight for the gratitude and look for the lesson or the blessing. So as opposed to looking at it as a like this super bad thing and allowing it to fester and be bitter, I just keep going, well, what's the lesson? What's the lesson? There's a lesson here I'm supposed to get. Like, what is the blessing and how can I use this to move forward? So at the time that we lost everything, my husband and I adapted this process. I call it like a daily mantra, right? So we would intentionally drive to the nicer side of town, which we did not live in during our time there in New Orleans. And we would look at the big homes and we would look at the cars, and we would intentionally say, been there, done that on the way back. And so we didn't have all this scientific research, but what we know now is that essentially we were rewiring our brains to understand that that scenario was not permanent. It was just a season. And that's one of the ways that we've been able to navigate and not get bitter when life happens. It's okay. This is a season. This is not forever. I talk a lot about like little exercises we would do, like the mantras or putting yourself in your aspirational reality. Sometimes we see the things that we want as so far off that we don't allow ourselves to just like dream and put ourselves in the space. So if there's a a neighborhood you really want to live in one day, definitely go to the open houses, walk around, sit on the beds, right? <laughs> like imagine yourself in the in the walk-in closet of that bedroom, you know, or imagine yourself standing there in the kitchen talking to your loved ones while preparing a meal. Like it is so important that you put yourself in those spaces so you can train your brain to see you in those spaces. If it's always this thing that's over yonder, you won't start to think about what are the next best steps I can do to get myself on that path? And so I love anything around helping yourself see what's possible, but you got to believe it, right? You have to put yourself in the space to believe it. 
Absolutely. I have a good friend who last year was going through a divorce and, uh, you know, that changes your whole life. And so there's this town, like you mentioned, she always wanted to live in this town, even growing up. So she went and found an apartment that she could afford in that town. And now she's just, she, she is committed to staying there and growing there and owning a home there someday. And so just like being present in that space and letting her believe that it's possible. It's been really cool to see that kind of unlock all of her drive and motivations. So one of the facts that you mentioned in the Peeper Pillar chapter was the Capital One Listen In survey. And this was such a sad number, which is 51% of respondents said that their friends, family, and colleagues fail to actually listen. And 18% of people can't remember the last time someone listened to them. And so if we want to create these connections, what are the first things we have to start doing in a world where we've kind of forgotten how to listen to each other? Well, I'll tell you, one of the folks who helped me really get this lesson down was my daughter, Reagan. So that's what, again, I just love this because I share so many of the personal stories. She was telling me a story when she was really young. And we all know how little kids tell stories. Like they're just around and about and it's never quite the punchline yet. And so I just did what a lot of us do. I zoned out. I was in my phone. I was probably scrolling through Facebook or Instagram or something. And Reagan said, why are you shaking your head? Like, it's not a good story. Like, it wasn't a good story. And basically, I know good and heck well, you weren't listening to me. And I just, like, the guilt, the mom guilt, right? The all the things came crashing down. And so one of the things that we can do for sure is just put the freaking phone down. Like at this point, Chelsea, I am the worst friend to text with because I'm not married to my phone. I don't always have a device in my hand. I'm not the person who's going to reply to your email within two minutes after you sending it. I've had to learn to set digital boundaries in particular so I can be present with the people that I say are really important in my life. If every time they want to have a conversation, they have to experience my forehead or the side of my face or something because I'm not giving them eye contact, what does that really mean? And I made a decision that I don't want to be a public success and a private failure. What good is it to be speaking all over the place and having young girls come to me? Today, I got a DM from a young lady who said, I started listening to you when I was 16. And she's like 20 telling me she's about to buy a condo and all this. And I'm like, whoa, whoa. And I love it. And I'm so appreciative. But what good is it to have this young lady think I'm so awesome and my own child think that I don't care about what she's saying? And the reason this is so connected to wealth, just to make that connection for the audience is two things. First of all, for our personal relationships, we can show up so much better in our work life in our personas, in our brands, when we know that home is taken care of, when we know that the people who we are present with also can experience our true presence, right? Being present is not always being present. So now we can show up more confidently and we know that they're not secretly bitter or upset because you have this big brand out here and oh my gosh, everyone else thinks you're awesome, but I secretly don't like you. <laughs> so, yeah. right. So, so building that connection and that relationship with my daughter allowed me to travel across the country guilt-free because she knows that when I'm home, I'm hers. And yes. that felt really good. And to my husband, for my husband as well. And then the other thing about the people pillar, I just want to say for the professional relationships, a lot of us are trying to force our way into the next level 
we're trying to force, manipulate, like, I got to make this happen. Wait until I meet Oprah. That's the, my favorite, you know, I can't wait to meet Oprah and she's going to change my life. And there's like, but how many people are you already in community with that you don't really honor, cherish or value? Because the truth is there's always someone watching you who has the power to bless you. But how are they watching you be? Like, how are they watching you show up? Because most of the opportunities, I would say 90% of the opportunities I've had in my career that have helped me rebuild my wealth, they didn't come from pitching and they didn't come from trying to force anything. They came from building genuine relationships with awesome people like you. Mm. And I think that you mentioned in the book as well, we're really good at showing up at our best selves at work and then letting thinking that like the people that love us will just understand. And like you said, that secretly hating you thing, but I think it comes into friendships as well, right? We forget to pour into those friendships. And then when we really need people, they're not there anymore or they're there, but they're there begrudgingly. And so I know you're not a great texter. How do you connect with the friends that you have? So I did this thing several years ago now, but it was called Brunch with Bridesmaids. So my bridesmaids from 13 years ago were my best friends from like high school and college. And I looked up at one point and realized that I only kind of knew what was going on with people. And I asked a few friends, like, how come you didn't tell me, you know, such and such? Or I heard one thing from another friend and they're like, well, we never want to bother you because we know you're always busy. And so because I have more of the public persona, the assumption is, well, she's always somewhere, so she's not available. And that hit really hard. And so I came up with this idea of brunch with bridesmaids, which was when I was still in California, inviting all my bridesmaids to like a brunch once a month or like at least every six weeks or so, so that I could give like undivided attention. Now I'm in the habit more so of just like, circulating like okay there's six of them right and I'm like okay I'm gonna FaceTime you next week and then I'll FaceTime someone else a couple weeks later so it's not you know dismissing it you can come right for me it had to be much more intentional and not being that idea well if it's important anything to do with a friend is important to me like if you're dating a new guy and you're not even sure if he's the one I still want to know Like, I don't need to wait until you're like, oh, I'm getting engaged to find out you've been dating. Like, I want to be a part of it. And Brunch with Bridesmaids was really great. Now that we've been in our COVID times, we've intentionally been doing Zooms, like, you know, every month on on a Sunday evening. But just be more intentional about that. But my friends do know, I'm going to text you back, but not in two minutes. I'm probably not going to see it that quickly. (laughs) There was a quote my grandfather told me when I was a teenager that was, uh, the phone is there for your convenience, not the callers. And like, you have no responsibility (laughs) to pick up the phone just because somebody is calling. And that has always stayed with me as well of like, no, I need to be present for the people who are actually in front of me and not whatever is happening on my phone or on my laptop. Yeah. And it's so funny that because we're so digitally accessible now, People actually have the expectation that as soon as they send you an email, you should reply in like two minutes flat. And I've gotten people that have called, text, emailed, and DM all in within like an hour. And it's like, well, my phone was off because I was recording an episode. So you could go to all these places and stress yourself out or just be patient. But I do believe in setting boundaries. And I've learned too, 
that it's not for the other person to even accept or adhere to the boundary. It's for us to enforce it. And that's an important part of building wealth too. How do we do that? I think a lot of people feel guilty about setting boundaries, like they're putting themselves ahead of somebody else. And that's an uncomfortable thing. And so how do we communicate those boundaries to people that we do care about? We just need to take care of ourselves too. I think it's about, first of all, knowing why you want to establish the boundary, because the thing is to say yes to everyone else is always going to be to say no to you. In that moment, sometimes when you were faced with the decision of do I do this or do I not, to say yes to that is a no in some other part of your life. And so you have to like believe that and understand that and make sure that you filter that through before you say yes to things that you really don't want to do. Because I know with a lot of women in particular, someone will ask a favor and we'll be like, sure. And then realize, well, I don't have the bandwidth. I don't have the time. I don't have the desire. I don't even like that. Right. And I don't want to do that. But they didn't learn how to put some scripts in place, possibly to help buy them time to really think about what that's going to cost. Like in the book, I lay out a couple scripts. Like I have a boundary for my money. Everyone who asks to borrow money will not be lent money. That's just not how that goes. And so I had to learn that other people's lack of planning was not my emergency. So my husband and I have this boundary that we put in place about when we lend money, for what purposes and and how we go through that. And so we came up with a script. And essentially, I'm so sorry to hear about whatever their concern is or their trouble or their problem. We have a policy that we can offer you a one-time gift of this to support, whatever that is. My one-time gift, my boundary, my limit is not based on what you're asking for. It's based on my budget. So if our budget is we can contribute $500, you can ask for a million, but my portion of the million that you need will always be $500. And then we always do a check or we do something now, more digital things, but the memo always says one-time gift. And so we're teaching people that this is a boundary that we have because I grew up in a household where my mom, as the eldest of 12 kids, felt responsible for everyone, right? And had I not been the type of student that could get scholarships and grants, my mom technically would have had to look me in the face and tell me, no, she couldn't help put me through college even though I watched her give tens of thousands of dollars away to people who were able-bodied and would never pay her back. And so you have to have, for example, a boundary with even your giving or like how you're going to shape your giving because to say yes to this person who always is probably in a need of some kind is to say no to what your children or you might need in the future. And so you have to look at the whole spectrum. Absolutely. And I unfortunately can't remember where this came from, but I read something a while ago talking about how we will not say no for 30 seconds of discomfort and then feel guilt and disappointment for a week and a half until the thing comes up or more if it's something like lending money. And it's always better if it's not a heck yes, it's a no. It's just I can't do it or here's my boundary. Here's my limit based on my budget. It definitely takes practice, I think. And knowing, Chelsea, that no, it does take practice. And I have an example, too, for that. No is a complete sentence. It doesn't require a whole bunch of explanation. We have to detach ourselves from their response because we shouldn't be swayed. Our values and what we want to do shouldn't be swayed by their response. But I always say to start saying no to really simple and easy things 
so that you can practice. Like it's a muscle that you build. So I had a client once where I told her to say no every time someone asked to borrow her pen. And she worked at a bank and I guess it would happen like frequently. She was like, and I would say, no, just tell them no. And she did it. Like she practiced saying no. And the uncomfortability of people looking at you with a pen and you say no, but for that moment, it would inconvenience your work, right? But it helped her build the muscle. You can start with small things and build your, your way up. I'm just imagining people's faces when she was like, no, you can't have my pen. No, like just no, put your head back down, keep writing. They're like, oh my gosh, right? But it's practice. All right. So we've been talking for a while. And so I don't want to keep you too long. Let's touch briefly on the last pillar on money, which I think which anyone sees a book that's called Redefining Wealth for Yourself. They think the whole book's about money. But tell us maybe your favorite part about the money pillar that you think is different from how other people handle money. I think just for the sake of your audience in particular, something around the money space that I want to say to all moms is just to remember that you don't have to be perfect in the money space in order to really share your story, share the goods and the bad, right? The up and the down of your money story, because that is going to save our children so much heartache. And we usually are trying to protect them from these quote unquote adult conversations. But the truth is we only have them for a short while. And if we can share, especially the things that we did wrong, it is so much better than trying to protect them from this imaginary, whatever we think is going to happen. It's so much better to introduce them to the money maven in you. And I think as women as well, what I love about like what you do in community is also not being ashamed to share the stories and the lessons with other women in particular. There's nothing, again, there's no one way to do anything in this money space. The budget that Patrice uses, Chelsea might look at it and go, what the heck is that, right? But as long as we're both moving along, our path and finding something that works for us. The point is that we stay in action and we create momentum, but also that we be honest about our failures and the things that we could have done better, because that's going to help us all collectively grow like sooner, quicker, faster. Absolutely. We say in the Motivated Mama Society, which is our membership community all the time, there's no one right way to do money. You've got to do it in your personality, in your lifestyle and make it fit for you. And on the back of that, you know, Redefining Wealth is your podcast. It's the name of your book. And so I'm curious, what does wealth mean uniquely to you? What is a wealthy life for you and your husband and daughter? First of all, that's an evolving definition. I remember when when wealth looked like, oh my gosh, if I could just pay my bills on time, right? When I went through my whole season, all I wanted was to pay my bills. And then in the space pillar, we went through the season of thinking that, we wanted all the things. So yes, been there, done that on the way back. So we went back, we had a 6,000 square foot home and all these cars and all the things. And then we looked up and realized we have a lot of space that we don't even care about. And as we do this recording, I'm actually spending almost a month in the Bahamas with my family during winter. And in the US, I'm in like 80 degree weather. Don't, don't be mad, Chelsea. Um, no, but- so- It's 25 degrees here, Patrice. <laughs> Every person I've had a call with has just like hinted at a bit of jealousy, but I love you all. You know, wealth to me now looks like being able to do what I want, when I want with the people that I love the most for as long as I would like. Like to me, that's wealthy. It's basically freedom. And what I love about Redefine Wealth is that we all get to define it for ourselves. And we also get to accept that 
that definition can evolve in different seasons. It's looked like different things. But for me right now, it's just freedom and contentment. Perfect. That's beautiful. Patrice, before we let you go, we have to have you try on our Smart Money Mama's sorting hat. The sorting hat is our version of the hot seat where we ask the magical hat to reveal something about you. Are you ready? (laughs) I am. What is something you wish people told you about motherhood before you had kids? Oh, I wish people told me that my child would not be a mini me just because she was a girl. It would have helped me embrace all of who God created her to be sooner, quicker, faster, instead of doing the, but I like such and such, but I like makeup, but I like, and she's like, but I'm not you. And I think coming into motherhood, knowing I was having a girl and making the assumption that she would be my mini me created a lot of early friction that wasn't necessary. And I think that we need to talk about that more. Your children are real people. (laughs) You're just responsible for them for a short time, but they're their own people. That is such a good piece of advice. I think we all, even as soon as our kids are born, do they look more like mom or more like dad? Do they behave more like mom? And it's like, no, no, they're their entirely own unique human being. (laughs) Has nothing to do. Has nothing to do with you. You were just a vessel, but they're their own person and let them be that. Absolutely. Patrice, where can people follow you, listen to your podcast and buy your book? Yes, you can come over to patricewashington.com. All things are there, links to the podcast, which is on every major platform. And the book, Redefine Wealth for Yourself, is there as well as on Amazon. Perfect. Mamas, we will have links to Patrice's site and podcast and, of course, her book in the show notes. Patrice, thank you so much for taking a pause at your beautiful vacation in the Bahamas to chat with us today. Absolutely, Chelsea. I adore you and the work that you do, so I appreciate you as well. Mamas, I always love getting to talk to Patrice. Her story of rebuilding after struggle is so inspirational, and her message about holistic wealth is truly needed. Plus, she's an incredibly kind and warm person. How could you not love talking to her? Her book, Redefine Wealth Through Yourself, is now available for sale, and we'll have links to where you can grab it in the show notes of this episode. I highly recommend checking it out and considering where you stand with each of the six wealth pillars. As always, I've wrapped up my three favorite takeaways from this conversation with Patrice to bring into your own thriving life. First, your physical and mental fitness need to be your first priority. Truly, what is the point of monetary wealth if you aren't able to enjoy it? And so many of us say that we'll make time to eat better, exercise, take time for mental health when we have more money, when we've reached that next stage of our career, when our kids you know, go to school or get out of the house. And that can limit so much our ability to keep that fitness. We get too sick, too unhealthy, that then it's really hard to recover. Not that we can't, it's just harder. And so prioritizing that first as our foundation makes it easier to work towards those goals that we're pausing health in the first place to get to. And so always focus on that. We wanna make sure we have the ability to enjoy all the wealth and abundance that we're creating in our lives. Second, we can't do this alone. Cultivate relationships, build your network, and pour into the people you love. Having the community around you to not only support you when you need it, but to be there to enjoy the wealth in abundance with you, to be able to enjoy your goals and milestones with you is so, so important. And pick you up when things are difficult. 
Now, this includes setting boundaries so you can also be present with your people, right? Setting boundaries at work, setting boundaries with people who maybe suck your energy, maybe take away from the mindset you want to live. We have to make sure that we're protecting who we let in and out of our lives. I always think about Glennon Doyle's island metaphor of you, your family lives on an island and you determine who is allowed to come and visit you on that island. You need to set those boundaries. But this is also why we created the Motivated Mama Society, right? We don't all have people in our lives who believe in our big goals, believe that we can build wealth and reach the next level. And so having the moms in the Motivated Mama Society around you who are also doing big things, who want to support you, can really be a huge difference maker in getting you to the next level and getting you to that life that you want. So if you're not in the society, make sure to check that out at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash join. And finally, decide what wealth means for you. It's a different number, a different feeling or vision for all of us. Instead of looking outward to find what wealth means for you, take the time to define it for yourself. And remember that that definition can change with the seasons of your life. What wealth is for you today might be different when your kids are older, might be different when you feel like your purpose has changed. Has it changed for Patrice? Has it changed for me? You guys have to figure out at each stage what wealth means and what your habits are creating in your life. What are you doing to cultivate what wealth means for you? You've got this. Mamas, I want to thank Patrice again for coming on the show to share her personal story and her pillars of wealth. You can find links to her book, Redefine Wealth for Yourself, and her podcast and all her social channels at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Patrice. You are worthy of a healthy, wealthy, thriving life, whatever that means for you. I'm cheering you on every step of the way. Keep talking money, mamas. I'll see you next time. 